Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Nomi Prinz, the geopolitical financial expert and investigative journalist. She is the author of several books, including her most recent, which I recommend everybody reads. It's called Collusion, How the Central Bankers Rigged the World. Now, the reason I was so excited to have Nomi on the show is because she does an excellent job at making these complex issues granular to people like me and how they impact my life. Now, what am I talking about? We can talk until we're blue in the face about central bank policy, about artificial stimulus, about the corruption in the financial system. But what I want to know is how is that impacting my life as a small business owner, as a retail investor, as a father with a mortgage, and therefore maybe how it impacts your life. And Sonomi does an excellent job at this. She's also very studied on geopolitical power balance, a subject that I just find fascinating. So look, why Nomi's perspective is so valuable is because she's not like an external critic of the financial system looking in. She worked at Lehman Brothers. She worked at Bear Stearns. She worked at Goldman Sachs, all at senior executive positions. And so she's really been in the belly of the beast. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did for context. This was recorded on September 21st. Here is Nomi Prinz on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Nomi Prinz. Nomi, how are you? I'm great, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for making the time. I'm really excited to jump into this, and there's like a whole web of directions I want to take this conversation. But what, where I'd love to start is with your recent book, your most recent book, Collusion. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with this, I'd love you just to give us the highlight reel. What inspired you to write it? And, and give us the as high level as you can, the general overview of what people will discover in this book. What inspired me to write it really was the fact that there wasn't any book available when I started to write it about how central banks operated or, or colluded really together across the world in terms of collaborating on monetary policy, on keeping rates basically on average at zero, um, all the conversations that went on amongst the leaders of those central banks. There was just no documentation. It was just spurts of uh, you know information on news here and there, but there was no comprehensive um, sort of analysis. And what inspired me to write it really was I was actually speaking at a meeting that was uh, the Fed and the IMF and the World Bank. They have these annual uh, meetings in Washington every year, um, COVID notwithstanding. And uh, at the time, um, and there was talk of the Fed potentially raising rates. This was this was around the 2015 area. And then there was all this fear from other central bank leaders, like if you raise rates, it's going to um, you know, crush our economies, our, 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 our systems, our, our debt loads, et cetera. Um, and so there was a sort of back and forth going on. And I was asked to just represent what Wall Street thought of all of this and why Wall Street hadn't at that time yet and since on lended to the general population, small businesses, et cetera, the cheap money that was available to them at similarly cheap levels. Like, why wasn't this happening? And my answer at the Fed was, well, because you didn't make them. They're not going to do what they don't have to do. They're never going to do what they don't have to do. Um, and that's how we stood. So between um, those two facts, I sat down and, and wrote the book Collusion, and, and it's a global book. It doesn't just focus on the Fed. In fact, there is no um, chapter on the Fed specifically. The Fed appears 
as a character in every chapter as we unfold central bank movements from the financial crisis through when the book came out, which uh, was 2018 for the hardcover, 2019 uh, for the paperback version. Um, and look at all the other major areas uh, within the world, uh, Mexico, Brazil, China, Japan, Europe, the UK, and so forth as um, actors as well, but sort of supporting actors relative to the central character, which is the Fed and how that just manifested in, uh, in what we have today and basically artificially stimulated markets still. Right, right. Now, I have to ask, so dialing it back to the, uh, the event that inspired this, the 2015 presentation to the World Bank, the Fed, and the IMF. Now, I have to assume you would have been a very dangerous person to invite because you were such a, you've been such an outspoken critic of reckless central banking policy. I mean, the whole thesis of the book, and it's not really so much just an outsider looking in, you know, your background at Bear Stearns, at Lehman, at Goldman Sachs, like you've really been in the belly of the beast. Were you surprised? And why do you think they invited you to present? And then just touch a little bit on what you said and the response you got. That is, that's such a great question, because my, my immediate reaction to the invitation was surprise. <laughs> I, I literally asked um, the person within the Fed that, that sent out the initial invite to me uh, to speak there if uh, they had made a mistake. I'm like, Did, have right. you read my books? <laughs> Do you know? um, and and uh, his response was, yeah, we have. Um, we really need some sort of a, a, a counter view. So I, I was, I think, brought on as the counter view to the prevailing view from the Treasury Department at the time, the Fed at the time, um, most of the United States um, sort of central bank leadership at that time, except the ones that were getting concerned um, about where this was all going, to sort of bring up the other side, the, the other view. Um, and, and my view has been um, and, and continues to be that the sheer epic size um, of central bank intervention since the financial crisis and, and even more accelerated to this day um, and since collusion came out is, is just um, not natural. Um, the artificial stimulation of markets doesn't give us real price discovery. It doesn't help the economy as the narratives say. Um, it doesn't uh, make private banks, large institutions on land at comparable levels to real people and real smaller uh, and local businesses. And so I, again, I was brought on, I think, to, to give that, that, that counter view. And I really was the only person uh, bringing up that counter view at the time. I remember that a couple of uh, guys from the Treasury Department spoke just before me, and they were talking about how great everything was, how the banks were all healthy now, everything was stable, there was no risk in the system anymore. And I was like, well, of course they look better. You gave them piles of money. <laughs> Anyone would look better if they were given piles of money from a financial standpoint. But that absolutely doesn't mean uh, that the risk is gone or that that money went into Main Street. Right. Yeah. It's, it's sort of an irrelevant point that the banks are healthy now. Right. But talk to me about like, well, who, you know, I don't want to say who cares, but, you know, let's let's make that relative to, as you said, real people and small business. What's the impact of of these policies of collusion? And I want even to talk about I think you mentioned this uh, in your book, the 20th century belonged to Wall Street. The 21st century belongs to central bankers. So what does that mean, Nomi? And what does that mean for people like myself, people like my viewers who are retail investors, you know, maybe own small businesses, et cetera? 
What's the impact on our lives? Right. Um, another fantastic question. And, and, and that was a, a key um, starting point in, in collusion that I had just written a book before that called All the President's Bankers, and that, that detailed um, the relationships between all of the Wall Street major families and major banking institutions with the presidents, their treasury secretaries, their vice presidents, and, and how that impacted um, policy, economic policy, military policy, trade policy, and, and everything else, but how the through line of all of that was these relationships appointed positions within administrations that came from the banking system, came from Wall Street, and then returned to Wall Street, how there was just this cycle um, of, of bloodline and an appointed line uh, to this whole environment. And as a result, there was a tremendous amount of influence um, that Wall Street institutions had on presidents and that presidents wanted from Wall Street. Um, and in the 21st century, what changed um, was that though we had the Federal Reserve created in, in 1913, so, so way back during um, mm. that period, and I, I do cover their history of, of evolution at the hands of Wall Street and some politicians, really. What happened in the 21st century was this pivot um, to effectively 0% interest rates. Um, now, they're 1.5% before the subprime crisis, so close to zero, pretty low um, by historical standards, even before the financial crisis hit. Um, and of course, as the financial crisis hit, um, sort of all hell broke loose in terms of calibrating rates to be at zero. And over the years that followed it, negative in Japan, negative in Europe, again, the sort of fabric of the world became uh, cheap money that went from central banks into private banks. Um, where that didn't hit retail investors, um, or particularly small businesses that were looking to expand or, or borrow or restructure loans, or individuals to restructure mortgages or other types of loans, is that those banks having received all of that cheap money to the tune of $29 trillion actually worth of various types of quantitative easing money, loans that were given under the table to banks to pop them up and all sorts of things along the way, um, didn't impact uh, the ability of small businesses to borrow um, to the same extent. In fact, what happened with small businesses and anyone, any of your listeners who is a, or your um, followers who, who are small business owners understand this, it became harder to get loans. It became more expensive to get loans. There was more red tape involved in showing, you know, profitability and, um, you know, all sorts of collateral uh, requirements and everything else. And the same thing began happening with ordinary uh, mortgage borrowers. So the result of all of the collusion of central banks was to prop money into uh, the banking system that that went in, into the markets, but but not to necessarily fortify. Um, the businesses and the individuals um, in the main economy. And as a result, the, the level of, of money that, that they received from banks relative to what banks received from central banks was, was fully distorted and, and fully disconnected. Um, right. And what that means today is all sorts of new methods um, have come up, you know, all sorts of B2B. I mean, other things have popped up in, in the wake of banks not doing what they used to do in terms of lending, uh, despite the money that they, they have been receiving so easily. So things have changed, but it, it has become harder for people and businesses to get money from banks. Now, I, I've always wondered, and this, I'd love you to share your opinion on this. You know, you, you described the 23 trillion that was provided to private banks. And the issue was that this wasn't then paid forward or lent forward to small business owners to actually stimulate the real economy. Those of us that 
may make sacrifices, take risks to try to build something and, and borrow some capital to do so, but that trickle down didn't occur. Now, was that just lack of foresight from the central bankers that they didn't put the right terms in place when they distributed this cash? Or do you think there was, I don't want to say something darker, but something deeper, you know, at play at that time? Well, they definitely didn't have any strings attached to it. Um, and that's why the narrative became that the only bailout that went to banks was, was TARP, which was basically only $700 billion. And it, it came through through Congress and sort of was appropriated um, with respect to Congress and the Treasury Department. But that was like a sliver um, of, of those trillions of dollars that, that went out and that are still there. They're, they're still the cushion to the banking system. And I would say that it was just a mistake if it weren't for the fact that it's still going on and that it accelerated this whole process of, of basically providing the banking system money with no strings attached to it during this current pandemic crisis. So pull me once and when you pull me twice, <laughs> on me. But, but the point being that, that no, it, it was just policy. If it was a mistake, it could have been corrected. Right. Um, it was not corrected. It was simply magnified. And so there, there's no way, you know, so yes, they didn't have an exit plan um, to this, what was initially an emergency policy in the wake of the financial crisis to stimulate, quote, the economy, but obviously um, also to help the markets and the banking system. And then it just sort of expanded um, from there to the point where today um, it's it's much higher, the, the subsidy that, that, that central banks with the Fed leading, um, leading that charge has provided Wall Street relative to Main Street. Um, whether it's darker than than just um, lying uh, and saying that th these policies are to the benefit of the economy, yet you know, obviously seeing that they they benefit the financial system, um, which has also expanded since then. It's not just the Wall Street banks; it's the hedge funds, it's um, asset management that effectively gets to uh, accumulate more funds from retail investors because retail investors can't get money from savings accounts because rates are so low. Pension funds um, for older uh, retail investors are not giving out what they uh, were able to give out in terms of accumulated returns. So many things have been altered in these 13 years and counting since the financial crisis. Mm. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. Now, you know, one trend that I've noticed since or during those 13 years, uh, and maybe it's just because I just started paying attention to it about this time, but the increase in division among citizens, right? An increase in anger, an, an increase in finger pointing. And it's there is like this, this relentless pursuit of division by call it mainstream media to give me a reason to hate my neighbor, right? And they, they, they try. And, and year after year, and I, anyways, where I'm going with this is I look at something like that. It's got to be a symptom of what's the cause, right? So when you look at these policies, you look at, uh, you know, hedge funds, Wall Street becoming increasingly wealthier, easier access to cheaper money to speculate however they wish, never trickling down to Main Street, small businesses, et cetera. Is that direct causality to you when you look at things like the rise of populism, the increase in civil unrest? 
you know, all sorts of extremist groups on the left and the right who were just born out of like frustration. And I think a misunderstanding of why their life isn't as good as it used to be. What, do you, what are your thoughts? So Jay, this is funny because it's like you literally have been reading the manuscript I'm writing for my new book. Hey, <laughs> neat. So, and, and, and I, I say that because it, it, I'm not trying to promote that at this point. It, it's, it's in manuscript form. I'm actually due to finish it shortly um, and hand it in. But yes, I absolutely do see all of that tension, all of that angst, all of that anger, all the civil unrest, all of the socioeconomic divisions, um, very much related um, to this abundance of money going to one element of, of the economy, of society, of, of individuals that already are wealthy, already have participation in the stock market to an outsized degree, and, and all the sort of players on that on that team relative to Main Street around the world. Um, you know, in 2019, there were, there were numerous publications, left, right, center, that talked about the actual occurrences of more protests that year um, than there had been throughout the decade. And this was during a decade since the financial crisis where uprisings were increasing everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just a matter of the most impoverished countries. You know, we're talking about Hong Kong. You know, we're talking about the U.S. Um, you know, and Brazil and Mexico. Literally, a litany of of uh, concurrent uprisings that had different details um, in terms of um, why they were specifically happening, but the overriding common detail was uh, economic disparity. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that that people, whether they revolt or get out in the streets or, or get angry or, or start to turn on each other is generally because they feel put down. Now, it could be because of race, it could be because of gender, it could be because of religion. There's lots of other, again, characteristics. But, but in general, if everyone were economically stable and, mm -hmm. and didn't feel that economic fragility, um, there would be a bit less of that. Um, and so if you, if you combine sort of latent problems with massive economic inequality and instability that has been aggravated during this period, um, it is no wonder that we get all of this extra angst um, everywhere in the world. And that translates to political polarization. It translates to you know, neighbor against neighbor and country against country, isolationism, populism. And it also allows leaders from the left and the right to, to sort of basically try to use this sort of yeah. populist rhetoric to, to basically promise people more um, than they can deliver in this environment that has been so distorted um, between where money flows upward and where the bulk of people actually live on a daily basis. Yeah, it's somewhat heartbreaking to me because you're right. And that's, that's I guess, the ambition of a lot of political leaders. Uh, we, you know, we just had a federal election. I'm in Canada. We just had a federal election yesterday. And, uh, and you see a lot of this leveraging the divide. Right. And it, it honestly breaks my heart. I hate it. Everybody watching this, can we please just take a minute to default to compassion? I would really appreciate that as best we can. And it's not easy to do. I get it. Okay. Now, uh, we talked about uh, isolationism, populism. Nomi, how do you forecast this trajectory? Because I look at it and I see maybe when I started paying attention or when it started, when I started feeling a bit triggered, I guess, and started to realize I needed to check myself. And when I start feeling triggered because of a media narrative, I need to step back and say, okay, what's really going on here? And this probably emerged around 2010 when the Occupy movement uh, was created. 
I was walking down Howe Street in Vancouver and I got heckled by uh, a crew uh, of the Occupy and I was wearing a suit and all this stuff. And I felt very triggered, almost like, uh, you know, it's me against them for some reason, all of a sudden. I stepped back and was like, that's that's not the case, right? Like, this is not what this is. But this division has just increased into uh, very polarizing candidates like Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, six years later, now more extremist groups like QAnon, Antifa, etc. Are you concerned? Like, where, how could this correct for the better? You know, or do you think this is a foregone conclusion that we're going to get really, really ugly and then eventually get better or talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah. So if I just look at it from a, a pattern perspective, and, and of course, we don't have a lot of data. We don't have a lot of, 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 of time if we look at the financial crisis and, and sort of that massive external injection of money um, that, that's really um, exacerbated all of these all of these economic issues versus the market and 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 so forth um so there, there's not a lot but what, what, what's been happening um i think is that there's a, a more of a quick uh selection or voting selection of, of people you know we're going to go to the left now we're going to go to the right now and i think that is um reaction to um just just this general anxiety on the ground so throughout sort of the you know 2016 to sort of 1819 there was uh, you know there was there was more populist um uh, forms of leadership and and voters um voting more more nationalistic and populist types of platforms but on the same token it sort of swung to the right um ish mm -hmm. on average not always in mexico we had amlo he came in he he sort of wrote populism uh, from the left uh yar bolsonaro in, in brazil wrote it from the right but but for the most part there there was a pivot sort of in on average one direction with some um, sort of differences in there. And then we sort of started to see a pivot back to uh, more of that to the left. And then we see now there's more polarization kind of peaking up from both sides. So what I see because of that is that there's going to be a, a sort of quicker pendulum swing um, in politics for the near future. And I don't know what that near future means, but it, it means as long as um, we have uh, you know, this 0% policy, this abundance of quantitative easing and other types of easy money, monetary measures and so forth, um, pretending to or wanting to or, or narrating itself as helping the economy when it doesn't throughout the world. Um, what we have now is more inflation and in real prices, like for food, like things that people actually need for their tables and medicine and healthcare. Um, all of these things that have also um, occurred because of, of sort of the, the COVID reactions and sort of the ongoing angst about that. Um, and supply chain disruptions and everything else, but some of it um, will continue. And pe when people have lost jobs and lost money throughout the years, even until that point, um, and then get more um, afraid of what can happen in the future, that tendency, um, that fear um, will also, I think, stimulate more of a impatience with politicians, particularly in the middle of the spectrum, as we've already seen. Um, but also people at the extreme mm -hmm. side sort of voting each other in and out more quickly. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's what's going to happen. And I think that's going to at least continue um, through this current 0% interest rate policy, which we're looking at now till 2023, 2024. And not like at that point, there's going to be a magical um, sort of everybody agrees that to disagree, but, but to move on together. Um, and to not sort of be as extreme in selections. And, and, but I, I just don't know if that's going to happen because I don't think that all of a sudden this distortion between the markets and the economy is going to go away. Um, all mm. that may happen is rates might rise a teeny bit. 
Right. Um, and so if, if we look at that having happened already during this past decade and then going back to, to zero and negative, um, it doesn't pretend well for the near future um, of having this polarization and this sort of economic angst um, go down. Okay, so I'd, I'd love to get more granular with you then and talk to my audience of, uh, you know, retail investors like myself. The whole reason this channel exists is because I'm looking for the best home for my cash. You know, that's what I pull from the conversations I have. I try to understand the macro as best that I can so I can uh, have a general understanding of what's occurring. Um, and then I get really granular and I look for safe havens, look for which is hard right now to find things that are undervalued, but I look for assets that are undervalued um, and start allocating capital that direction. So can you talk to me at all about how you positioned yourself or, yeah, if, if you're comfortable talking about that, how you positioned yourself for the decade ahead from a capital standpoint? Sure. So one of the things about uh, capital that, that we have um, is that all of this anxiety in the world that we just talked about, um, given that it's unlikely for it to go away, um, what it manifests in the markets um, are two things in general, in general market levels, um, particularly stock market and the bond markets, is that these, the abundant money that's available kind of floats into those markets because you can replicate, money can replicate itself more quickly in the stock market um, than it can sitting in a savings account, um, even buying bonds at this point because rates are so very low. And that's one of the reasons that we've seen such extreme highs um, in the stock market, even with the pandemic um, sort of crunch that happened. Uh, there's been the sort of resurrection since then up to highs that were higher than where markets were, particularly in the U.S., um, before that crisis occurred. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to continue in general because this money, the subsidy is available um, and the return on equities um, is going to be higher than a savings account or, uh, or a bond fund. That's just because it's, that subsidy exists. However, there's going to be more choppiness. There's more volatility that's going to come into play in the market because we've already had this whole deluge of money come in post pandemic. Now it's around, it's going to stick around, but there's not as much to add to it. And so what's going to happen is there's going to, I think, be a sort of relative high that's going to stick around, but it's going to be with a lot of volatility. So how do I position myself? How do them position themselves uh, for volatility, given that we've had such an extreme rally, you know, since, since the, the lows of the pandemic, but with all the extra central bank activity that's gone around that. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think that there is safety in, in hard assets uh, for two reasons um, and um, as a percentage. Um, I personally right now think there's more of an upside to silver than gold, but in general, and also copper because copper has been a bit depreciated having gone up to highs and kind of come back down. Um, and I think those things because um, gold sort of there is just kind of a, a, a long-term sort of relatively safe hard asset for portfolios, particularly when we're looking at money being just sort of inflated to such an extent. Silver has more use value um, and is cheaper. Um, and also I think it's come back down a bit uh, more recently. So I think it can pop back up past the, those levels. Um, and same thing with copper. When I say use value, one of the counteractions that has been positive um, in, the, in the wake of the pandemic is more conversations about infrastructure building, about development, about investment in electronic vehicles, in um, sustainable energy, um, in technology that, um, impacts people um, from a health standpoint, from an education standpoint, um, that might be staying at home or outside of urban areas more than they have before and working you know, from other places. So I think there's upside um, in the metals, the assets that, that help those sectors, as well as in those sectors themselves. 
Um, so I do think there's upside in, um, in things that can clean the air, um, in certain electronic vehicles, sort of um, charging stations, you know, sort of companies mm. that basically, and sectors that, that will enable you know, us to sort of move forward from, from where we are with a combination of what is now federal money, government money around the world, as well as private interests. So Wall Street's on that game as well. And so those two things, I think, um, still have benefit in, in those types of sectors. In terms of other things, I, I do actually hold some Bitcoin um, and some of the altcoins um, as um, an alternative asset, really, at this point. I think one of the interesting evolutions, whether Bitcoin becomes a, a stable currency um, or simply an asset class, um, it's still being used more and more um, to transact business outside of the main banking system, even though oftentimes it has to go through one's bank account, it has to be linked to a bank account in order to use some of the apps that are available. But I do see that continuing to grow as people more and more turn away from traditional banking, traditional um, ways of lending, um, and more to uh, sort of B2B types of, of lenders, um, and also you know, Bitcoin and, and other types of, of uh, alternative assets um, in the crypto space. Other than that, I think some of the other infrastructure sections, some of the, some, some of the building um, types of sectors, whether we look at, you know, cement, for example, in um, major construction projects, um, you know, companies like Semex, for example, in Mexico. Um, and I say this, you know, as, as an example of, of international companies that have appearances on the world stage um, in areas of, of development um, around the world. So companies that basically have a diverse footprint um, mm. and are building things and can be funded by governments and by um uh, institutions and, and investors. Um, okay. so, so those are kind of the, the general areas that I, I see value in. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. So I'm quite overweight, uh, precious metals equities, I suppose. And I am fairly beat up in my portfolio right now. However, I was speaking to a peer of mine who runs a very comparable YouTube channel. And, and most of my viewers know who this is, but we were chatting yesterday, just sharing notes in our portfolios, and he kind of he kind of uh, identifies me as a gold bug, which I think is hilarious. But isn't that the case? If you own five percent of your portfolio in gold, you get called a gold bug. Even if twenty percent is in real estate, you don't get called a real estate bug. But it is what it is. And uh, and he was grilling me on this, and he said, "Look, you know, if if he's he's a Bitcoin advocate, and and he's a Bitcoin advocate that is anti-gold, and he said, if gold isn't performing now, will it ever? The the macro environment's never been more supportive." But we're not seeing gold or the gold equities move. I like, I think the game's done for real. So I went out and doubled down on my gold equity positions because I thought this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the sentiment I like to hear as a buyer. Okay, a couple uh, couple things for you. Uh, any emerging markets, Nomi, stand out to you as uh, that you are more bullish on? I, I like some of the Latin American markets um, that uh, have... Um, that are growing their their sort of um, external uh, spaces. For example, Colombia. Um, I, I I think that's that's a sort of overlooked um, country. You know, it kind of gets thrown into a sort of past drug cartel bucket, et cetera. It's it's evolved since then, <laughs> uh, since since narcos. Um, and and it um and it has some really good um, 
infrastructure that's that's been building up in in some of the cities um, and, and some um, very good energy and sustainable energy um, types of projects and businesses. Um, so I think in general, um, and especially also the, the location of it uh, between North and, and South, you know, top of South America um, is is beneficial. I would say Mexico also has um, benefits on, on on that respect um, too, also because a lot of uh, uh, as as COVID um, restraints have been sort of loosened um, in general throughout the world, there's a bit more migration into Mexico um, from bit for businesses. There it's kind of stopped for a bit, um, and so I think there's there's growth over over there. Um, I also think that the UK has some interesting growth patterns. I was just there actually um, looking into this um, throughout most of the month of August, um, and I hadn't been there since pre-COVID because of. COVID. Um, and I, I tend to go quite regularly. I, I lived there for many years. I, I, I go I go there several times a year and keep tabs on, on lots of different things. And, and the amount of building, the amount of construction um, is phenomenal throughout that space. And it's not just construction that's that's sticking around without sort of buyers. It's, it's, it's construction that's actually um, going to people in these buildings and in these businesses, in small businesses, um, that are growing um, even post-Brexit, where I would have said that would be an issue. Um, and there are elements of the UK economy, like in agriculture, that are hurt because of Brexit. But in the construction and other types of uh, technology development in the UK, um, there's actually quite a lot of, of growth there. Hmm. So just a, a couple examples. I love it. Okay. Now, I recommend everybody go out and grab a copy of Collusion, and you can find it anywhere you buy books. I got the audio version on Audible. And you touched on your next book. Um, I'd love just to pull on that thread real quick. It's called Permanent Distortion, correct? That's right, yes. And do you have a publishing date yet, Nomi? I don't have a publishing okay. date yet, merely because um, <laughs> because much of the publishing industry is is also um, a bit backed up. Um, yeah. Very like, also like disruptions. Um, so, so I, I would have said it's going to come out in the spring of next year, but, but it actually might be um, later than that, but, but sometime next year. Okay. I'm looking forward to it after a couple of the uh, hints that you shared today um, seems to hit on a topic that I'm, I'm very, very curious about. Uh, okay. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on. It was great chatting with you. I really appreciate you making the time and uh, getting in front of my audience and letting me hit you with some questions, Nomi. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Shane. And honestly, we 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 really covered um, material that's so important to me, and I, I think to to everyone, um, and 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 that you brought out so well. So I I really appreciate um, this time. I appreciate that, and thank you for writing your books. All right, we'll do this again sometime. I hope. Awesome. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor: follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review, and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.